If you have a Bible this morning and you want to follow along in our scripture reading, I'd encourage you to. It's going to be found in the book of Psalms, and we're going to read the 32nd Psalm this morning. This is likely a familiar one to you. You may not know it by number, but certainly the contents are expressed regularly and for good reason. Um, I don't know why that I can continue to feel led to discuss this topic. Tried to resist it somewhat, but um, I'm going to defer to the Lord's wisdom and not allowing me to escape these thoughts other than my own. Psalm chapter 32, or the 32nd division of the Psalms. Excuse me. We'll read the entirety of the Psalm today. It says this Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. very thankful to be forgiven today. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me. From trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. I'll conclude our reading this morning. Let's read the entirety of the 32nd Psalm. And... uh, For the last five weeks, we've talked about forgiveness, and uh, I think it's necessary for us to have understanding of truth, but I always appreciate when the Lord deepens that understanding, and you can better sense in your spirit what it actually means. Or in other words, it's not just up here, but you can sense it. The further that I walk with the Lord, I said this Wednesday night, the more that I value experimental truth. 
the experience of it. There is a great deal of people today that have turned this book into a textbook. And I would never discourage the seeking of understanding of God's Word. But there is, a, there is more to this than just defining right and wrong. There's more to this than just knowing stories and, and principles whereby we can live our lives. If that is the entirety of this, if that's its purpose and its function is just to communicate dry, dead principles whereby we can implement. Though its accuracy may be above other books, its purpose is no different. What is about this book? The reason it is to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Notice even in that metaphor, it's experimental. It's used in its function. It's considered in its function. It does something for you that as you walk, it provides light where darkness prevailed. Now to understand the significance of that, you have to walk in darkness first. Because if you've ever walked in darkness, you've been in a home and you've tried to be quiet so the other occupants could sleep. And you walk and usually what happens is you first damage and hurt yourself. And at our house, it's like most young boys, it's the... Uh, the Legos, right? Everyone knows that's how, you, uh, that's how you punish a parent is you leave Legos out. And then you begin to destroy other things around you because you're walking in darkness. And often we walk in darkness because we assume that in the next room, if we'll just take a few steps, then light will prevail and we'll see. And we think we have figured out this path. We're familiar With what steps to take in this realm of life. Thus, if darkness prevails, our own wisdom will keep us in the right way. That is often the case, at least I find in myself, when I begin to try to navigate this world with the application of principles that I know to be true, but are not spiritually applied to my own heart and life. And yet, when the Spirit of God confirms truth, when He deigns to come from heaven and lighten my path, and suddenly I see all those things that were hidden, yet so obvious. Have you ever done that? Have you ever walked somewhere And it's not that you just stepped on a small, obscure object. But you run into a wall. You hit a big piece of furniture that's bigger than you are. How could you do that? It was right there. It's because you couldn't see. But God saw it. God knew it all the while. He saw the light. He saw the darkness as though it was light, it says in the scriptures. And had we firmly trusted in, depended upon his light to guide us, then our experience through this veil of sorrow would be entirely different than often what it really is. Or in other words, our life experience would be altogether different than what we presently experience. The psalmist here... As we've tried systematically to go through the best of my ability and show different aspects, and and I don't regret doing that. I think it was good. But I think the psalmist here adds a new dimension to the concept of forgiveness. Its purpose, its aim is different. It's not necessarily to build conceptual understanding 
but it's to communicate experimental truth. It's to communicate from the old sage. Older person today, I hope you know that one of the greatest things that you can leave behind was not your strength in your days of youth. It is your wisdom in the weaning days of your life. The world today is in so much darkness because we've silenced those that have the wisdom of experimental knowledge. They've lived, they've seen, they've felt, they've known. And yet very often their wisdom is relegated to, we make them out to be relics of days gone by. And oftentimes Satan will convince them, you have no wisdom that applies to today. And yet I beg to differ because when I read this psalm, I read this Deeply experienced man who knows sin. And he knows and therefore appreciates forgiveness to a level unknown to him in his younger days. He begins this psalm the way that the first psalm begins. This is the second time that we find this introduction. This is also obviously the word blessed is found in the Beatitudes. We find all the things that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, those first seven of nine verses or so, begin with, blessed is the man. What's interesting about this is that in verse 1 to verse 2, the the English word is the same, but the the original words are different. Because this says in verse 1, blessed is the man who does this. And then in verse 2, he actually heightens the pitch of the tune. And he puts it in the plural. And we don't have a way to express that with that word in our language, but it was as though he was saying, Oh, the blessednesses. Oh, the blessedness. Or even that world being plural. Oh, the blessings of. Oh, the joys of. He begins his psalm and he tells us, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Sin, we talk about often. And perhaps talking about it so often dulls us to the potency of the poison sin is so awful have you ever seen brokenness in life I want you to reflect for just a moment upon situations that you've experienced throughout your life that you've witnessed and observed throughout your life of brokenness when there is no hope for redemption. Not because God is unwilling, but because the participants in sin are unwilling. A number of years ago, I was exposed to sin of that nature, and it struck me as I heard about this sin. And I commented to my wife, I said, A hundred years from now, the effects of this sin will be felt. That's how often sin is. The world is already broken through Adam. I'm talking about the natural world. And we're going to experience, just through nature, certain things that are terrible. Famine, death, sickness. And those things by themselves are part of what makes the cross of life difficult to bear. Those realities that we have to live in within this world. You know, to contend this morning that those, as awful as those things are, those things do not effect and cause as much pain as sin. The willful decision of other people and ourselves 
to purposely violate the law of God, not without knowledge, with knowledge, that we know what is being done is wrong, we know what is being said is wrong, we know the lifestyles being built are wrong and being sustained are wrong and sinful, and often God reveals to us the cost of those things. The cost of disobedience, the cost of persisting in our allegiance to self and the propagation of a life designed by our own will. And we're reminded constantly throughout that journey, I know I ought not to be here. I know the actions that I am taking or omitting are things I ought not to. And yet there's a willful persistence. And, and it's right there. It's right at that edge that I begin to marvel at the grace of God. There is a For the compassionate person, there may be a natural propensity to understand and therefore more easily forgive actions of passion or actions of sin that are derived from difficult circumstances. I'm starving at home, therefore I stole. And in our minds, we understand and we can justify and we can sympathize. And we can say, okay, I understand why the judge is lenient, why he extends grace or mercy to that situation. When somebody is in immense pain, even today, and they begin to abuse substances that ought never to be consumed, our rational minds say, you know, there's something that compelled that. Thereby, I will be sympathetic. And compassionate. And very often what is done today to draw the sympathies of the world is that people try to broaden that. They, they, they try to categorize their sin under that category. Thereby getting sympathy from all people. They try to tell you the sob story. Here's why I did this. Here's why it's not my fault. And they may dig deep into their childhood. They may tell you some terrible circumstance that befell them uh, uh, unprovoked by their own actions. Trying to gain the sympathies. Trying to justify the the reactions and the sin that is committed in that reaction. And there is something within our Fallen nature that has a tendency to justify and vindicate both ourselves and others when sin falls in that category. But I believe this psalm is not derived from a situation which arises from a category like that. The psalmist is not finding himself praising God's mercy and forgiveness because he just happened to do something because of a series of circumstances that compelled him to act. But where the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God truly is shown to be what it is, is when all excuses fall dormant. When all natural justifications fall away. And where our conscience preaches to our own hearts, you are guilty, you are guilty, you are guilty. And no fig leaves, no bush can hide you from what you have done. I hate that place, but I love that place. I hate that exposure. It's painful to me. I like the fig leaves. 
I like the circumstantial evidence which justifies my actions and thoughts. And when I am stripped of those things, you know, some people, they have this terrible fear that their sins will be found out by others. And yet, when a person is truly thinking clearly, I'll just simply put it that way. That's not what I mean, but you'll, you'll know what I mean. When a person is thinking clearly, the greatest shame that I ever feel is when I stand before God that way. When I sin, when you sin, God alters your perspective to see spiritual reality and you and Him for what it really all is and all of the people for what they really are. The shame that we may experience by others seeing our sin pales to what standing before a holy God reveals in us. And yet, the tone that he strikes at the beginning of this, before he gets into these realities, is so beautiful. It's a, a tone of ultimate triumph. Ultimate joy. That he has experienced. Many believe, I don't know if this is the case, this psalm was written after the 51st psalm. You remember the 51st Psalm is David lamenting his sin with Bathsheba. Many would say this was ordered in the chronological order in accordance with that. I don't know if it was or not. It would make sense if it was ordered that way, but whether it was or not does not change the contents of it. It perhaps just emphasizes the content of it. David praises God, and I hope this morning that one of the constant praises that you have towards God that is always lifted up from the time that God saves you until the time that you utter your last breath is God thank you for being a God of forgiveness you see me for what I really am even when I don't see myself we could go to the 139th division of the psalm we often sing a song which we sing about its contents Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any evil way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. In a, we, we can infer from that that the psalmist is acknowledging, I cannot search my own heart. I cannot drill to the core of my motives and my intentions. Thus, God, I'm going to ask you to audit my heart, to bring to the surface those things which I have tucked deep that I might not see the wickedness that lies within bring those out and when those things are brought out and then we consider the reality that despite those things and how we have suppressed those things we have ignored those things we have intentionally covered those things up that they not might not be seen by ourselves or others or that we might deceive ourselves into thinking that God doesn't see those things the psalmist takes all of those sins and he lays them before God and he says blessed is the man who has been been forgiven of sin. One of the great truths of all the Bible is there is no sin that God can't forgive. What a wonderful, you know, that's not true with us. You realize that, right? You realize that we don't have the capacity to forgive in a limitless fashion. You can't forgive in that way unless God imputes to you divine love and forgiveness. Many people go their whole lives bitter, hateful, resentful towards others, towards someone for something they have done. And Satan has convinced them, you know, you can't ever forgive them. God, through His grace, can impute to you a forgiveness that you can forgiveness even the people who have committed the most vile acts against you, but know that its author is God. Many things I didn't cover. I want to move on for just a moment. Verse 3 and 4. This tone that he strikes in verse 3 and 4 sounds all too familiar to the human heart. 
after sin has been committed? The response is to keep silent. Not to acknowledge, not to confess, not to expose, but to tuck it away in the recesses of the mind. David confesses to doing that. But there's a side effect. And this morning, I intended to deliver this much differently, but I want to bring before you in verse 3 and verse 4 that to me, this is an evidence of somebody who has been truly saved. I'll be transparent this morning. I, I worry, I concern myself that many people, whether they're on our church rolls, whether they're in your families, my family, who have a a story that they've told about salvation and yet are not truly saved. Who have clung to this just a number of months ago, I was speaking to a man and not only is the fruits of his life that he is not a Christian, but he is seemingly actively opposed to it. He is actively discouraging those which are. And yet in a very passive, revealing moment as he was justifying why his attitude is the way it is. His response was, yeah, when I was a nine-year-old boy, I truly got saved, so I know I'm all right with God, but. And got to all the justifications as to why he hates church and Christian people and all these things. Why he doesn't obey God's commandments and live in accordance with God's word. I thought. There was no opportunity to express otherwise, but I thought, woe to that man. Because listen, uh, Satan can attempt to emulate a salvation experience through an emotional stirring too. I like to talk about that a lot. You know, that first struck me years ago when I learned about the Mormon faith, that they have something called a burning on the breast. So, one of the ways that you can know you're a convert is that you get a burning on the breast. I thought, well, that's kind of strange because often people would perhaps describe what we say in our church in that way. And yet for a religion that does not acknowledge Jesus as God, that doesn't I don't understand that. And as I began to study that, what I began to learn is that even animistic even pagan religions through the centuries have at times pointed to an emotional stirring as evidence of conversion. As I've studied that through the scriptures and contemplated the the reality of that, first we want to beware not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because many people today have. Is they've said, well then, Certainly, any kind of emotion that comes along with experience cannot be evidence of salvation. And I would say, whoa, 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 hold on a second. That's not the case either. Because I do believe as we read through the New Testament, I'm not going to get to describing or or proving that this morning, but when a person is truly born again, there is a complete change which takes place in the entirety of the person which does affect the emotions. I believe that. And yet, that alone. There is more that happens at the moment of conversion. And here, the psalmist to me, whether he's intending to or not, reveals one of those things that is to me a clear evidence of conversion. I heard someone say not too long ago, an older man said, somebody asked him, do you still sin? I thought his response was interesting. He said, yes, but less often, and it hurts more when I do. I could break that statement down a lot of ways, and I'm not going to this morning, but I will say that there is an element of truth that should be found in that statement especially the second part. 
In your Christian walk, the closer that you get to being conformed to the image of Christ, the more painful sin is. When I was in college, I was surrounded, I lived in a dorm, and I was in a, on, a, on a, it was all boys on my floor. And as you can imagine, that environment, just what I could hear through the walls, just what I could hear out in the hallway, just what I, the, the communal bathroom and, the, and the, where the food was at, you know, the things that I would hear were very vile and awful. I didn't associate in a friendship with people who were like that, but it was all around me. I couldn't get away from it. It was just where I lived. And vulgarity stopped affecting me like it does now. When I hear a a vulgar word today, or a joke, where the punchline is vulgar, it affects me back, bigger. It makes its mark on me, and I say, ah, oh, I, can't, I can't do that. It hurts. Did you hear me? It hurts. Because what I recognize is it's not my tender conscience that necessarily I'm trying to preserve. It's not that as a man I, I, or as an adult, I don't have the strength to endure. But I shudder to think about the offense that that is to God. Here the psalmist, he sins and he keeps silent about it. Perhaps, perhaps, I haven't, that's a greater tendency in our youth to be like that. But then when you begin to realize the impact of sin, and you grow, and you grow, and you grow, and you mature. Suddenly, the next part of what the psalmist said begins to happen. You sin. Others around you sin. Here's how the psalmist described the effect of it. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Well, here's another way that I saw this translated. My vitality was lost. Think of your vitality. It's your, your energy to go tackle the world. Your life in you. And yet what the effects of sin have upon a person who is attempting to walk at the same time in the presence of God is that it steals your spiritual life, your vitality in spiritual matters, and then often, also just naturally speaking, is lost. It is a good thing when a Christian has a difficulty functioning when there is sin, active, persistent sin that is separating them from God. It's a sign that that person has truly been saved. Because Paul tells us when we go to Romans 7, and I'll turn there very briefly, but I'm not going to try to get into explaining the play on words here. But in Romans chapter 7, Paul acknowledges this. He says this, For that which I do, I allow not. Or in other words, for that which I am doing, I don't want to do. And that which I don't want to do, I do it. Continues. If then I do that which I would not, I consent under the law that it is good. I'm not going to explain all this. There's so much. There's so much good stuff here. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would that I would I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But please hear this part. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, 
which is my members. You see what Paul is describing here in a person that gets saved is the same thing that David is describing in Psalm chapter 32. There is this raging conflict that is going on within me. I can get away from church. I can get away from godly people. But as someone who has had the law of God written upon his heart, as someone who has tasted and seen that God and his word is good, as someone who knows God, I can never forget that which God has written inside of me. And even in the throes of sin, when I am delighting in sin, there is this conflict going on within Screaming at me, telling me, this is not right. This is wrong. And many people today, while I resent at times all the gadgets and gizmos that we have accessible to us, is because it often now distracts from the voice within that speaks and preaches to us the law of God. We drown it out with from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep. We hear voices of all these other people and all their interests and all their wisdom. When often it would do us better to merely allow God as we're driving. Allow God as we're waking in the morning. Allow God as we have those blank moments in our life where nothing is going on. Just to allow God to speak in us. Perhaps... We don't want those moments. I don't know. Because maybe they would. That war would rage and would deepen. And maybe the voice of the law of God would begin to reign supreme and drown out the voice of pleasure. Here's Paul's conclusion, though. He says this in the next verse. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul, excuse me, David in the psalm is saying in verse 30, or excuse me, in verse 3 and 4. Verse 4 says this, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is now turned into the drought of summer. You ever been living in unrepentant sin? And it dampens the pleasure of the blessings of God. You know it's a blessing from God, but you can't enjoy it like you once did because you know that there's a conflict between you and the one who gave you the gift. That's what David is describing here. Here's one thing I would like to say this morning for you to consider today. If you have family members who have made a profession with their words, But their life tells a completely different story. Would you consider the possibility for a moment that maybe they never had a profession that was true in the first place? That's a hard truth to swallow, but a necessary one before eternity, don't you think? A tree bears forth fruit. And to me, this is one of those fruits. A person who has truly been saved by God's grace will have a battle waging within when their life is not living in accordance with God and His Word. And then, here's what the psalmist does. He says, Selah. I'm sure you all know what that means. Pause. Stop. And it encourages us to reflect to consider, to meditate upon the tune which has just been sung. And then, and this has been a peculiar consideration for me over the last number of weeks. Many people, right before this pause, it describes their experience. They're waging war inwardly. Perhaps you have family like this. And you see the unspoken struggle, the unspoken war going on within. Because very often we can discern those things. Very often God helps us to see into people's lives and into people's hearts. 
where we can see that there is this conflict and yet they cling to the sin. And I've contemplated for weeks now, what is it that causes a person to relinquish their will and their own volition in serving self and devoting themselves to sin and wrong despite knowing what they're doing is wrong? I don't have any conclusions if you're wondering. It's something that has been constantly stirred up over the last number of weeks. What is it? When you go to some, like Nathan goes to David, and he says, you're the man. And the sin that you are committing is going to wreak havoc in your life and in this kingdom and all around you. And you've offended God. And what does David do? Oh, he falls down in weakness. And he cannot bear the reality which he has heard. What about the prodigal son who goes out and has lost all of those things? And yet the stubbornness in man and the pride in man, there are some who would rather die than go back to the father and say, Father, I have sinned. Make me a servant. What about the Corinthian church? What a hard letter to digest. I'm often reminded of them when I feel like I need to speak hard truth to somebody I love. And it is always an encouragement to me. Because very often the response that they had is not the response most people that I try to talk to have. And perhaps it's my fault. right? Perhaps it's uh, the messenger is not quite of the quality that Paul was. Um, But do you remember how harsh that letter was? Paul makes... He confesses his love, but he denounces sin in the sharpest of terms. He doesn't say to them, I'm on this person's side or on this person's side. He says, I'm on God's side and you're not. And you need to repent and make things right. And so here's the question. When the church gets this letter and just like we're going to do perhaps here in just a little bit, we're going to get up in a business meeting and and we're going to have our clerk get up and he's going to read correspondence to us. And imagine this church, whether it was one that was spread and they read individually, or whether it was the, the elder of the church got up and he said, Paul, our, our, our beloved man has come and he's written us this letter and he gets up and he begins to read this letter. And as he's reading about the variety of sins that the people have committed, no doubt the minds and eyes of the people are glancing over at those guilty. No doubt the hearts of those who have committed the sin are feeling that weight when you are exposed for what you are. And you feel that heaviness inside. And in those crucial moments, what causes one group of people to rebel with pride and anger and say, I will never acknowledge my wrong? And for others to hear the same letter, the same message, and their heart be crushed and then make no pretense of saying well he's guilty of that or she's guilty of that but saying I am the man it's me lost person this morning here's two responses you can have to the message of the gospel I'm going to stonewall I'm going to be hardened I'm going to project this morning that I'm not under conviction and nothing is bothering me. Or have the honesty of heart that just says, that's for me. I am guilty. And I need God to change my heart. Here's what I do. No, I don't know what changes it. Let me rephrase that. I don't know what about And I'm not going to try to, because I I genuinely don't know. It's really, really gone through my mind a lot here over the the weeks. I'd be certainly here willing to hear if you have some thoughts about that. But here's what I do know. I do know that our prayers for the hearts of those that we love make a difference. I believe that. I believe what we do is not just semantics to encourage somebody. We don't have an altar of prayer just so it maybe 
buoys the emotion a little bit. That's not the point. It's because the sovereign God of the universe has said, when we pray, He may act contingent upon our prayers. And that He can wield whatever tool that He sees fitting to affect the human heart in a way He knows us so intimately He can affect us in ways that only He has the power to do so. Here's what David does, and I'm going to close this morning. I intended to go through the whole psalm, believe it or not. He says this in verse 5. After he pauses, he says this. I acknowledged my sin unto thee. Each of these actions that he takes are very important. The first thing he does is he acknowledges it. Here's how I view this progression. Okay. He first acknowledges it in his mind. He doesn't say, nah, or he doesn't glance over at the other person who may equally or even greater be guilty to a greater degree of that sin. He does what perhaps is the hardest part for many people. He just says, it's me. I don't care about anybody else. That's between them. I acknowledge this is me. I'm guilty of greed, of anger, of bitterness. I'm guilty of these sins. It's me. And he says the next thing. I did not hide it. There is something cathartic about acknowledging something like this. Cathartic just meaning it's emotionally relieving. You ever needed a cry? I have. You know, you, you have all this built up, and a good cry just makes you feel better. That's not what he's talking about here. Because usually what follows, if it's just a cathartic activity that you're looking for, then usually what follows the acknowledgement is the covering it up, the justifications, the reason why we'll be inactive, why we won't act to change. But a person who is truly repentant follows this succession of events that he lays out here. He says, I acknowledged my sins. And then I did not hide it after that. Verse, four, or verse five, he says this. And my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Have you ever, and I've said this before here, but I think it's important to mention Have you ever said your sins out? You know, if you're like me, I pray most of the time quietly in my head. I'm not a verbal prayer normally. I'm by myself or even in service many times. If you want to know what I really do, I put my fingers over my ears because I'm easily distracted. And if I hear you pray, I start thinking, well, that's a really good prayer, right? I get distracted really easy. So I generally, I put my fingers over my ears and I just... Just talk to God in here. But have you ever confessed them out loud? God, I lied to this person. And then I lied again to cover it up. And I continue to allow them to live under the understanding of this lie. God, I'm a liar. Cuts different to me. Cuts different. The psalmist just rips it all open before God. But he gets to the best part, and I'm done. He says this, And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. I'm thankful this morning, I didn't look at the original in this, but I'm I'm really glad that he uses the iniquity of my sin. That's an interesting way to phrase it. He could have just said iniquity, he could have just said sin, but he said the iniquity of my sin. As though what he is saying is this, the wickedest part of what you did, God forgave. The iniquity of how you missed the mark, that's what sin means. 
the deep wrong of what you have done. God forgives. But he does to the heart that humbly comes before him in confession. This morning, I I suppose as we close the message, there are two things. Number one, if God convicts you about sin and you're truly a child of God, respond the way that David does here. We categorize big and little sin. Throw that out the window. Just sin. And here's the other part I want you to take home. If you don't feel conflict from sin, if you don't feel the warfare, or if those you love live under this false notion that they can just dive as deep into sin as they want, unrepentant, and Go back to some thing that might have happened. Won't you consider for a moment that maybe Satan is deceiving them? And that maybe bringing that to their attention would be the right thing to do. What a terrible thing. For God's word to tell us, a tree will be known by its fruits. And we observe the fruits of those that we love for their entire life. And we say... That's the fruit of an evil tree. That's the fruit of an evil tree. That's the fr- I, I know that fruit. And there is no remorse, no repentance, no conviction. But they say they were originally a plant in a good tree. I didn't see it. They said they were. This morning, I pray you can see that I don't mean that in a mean way. I would hate. I would hate for your loved ones to waste their life, but think that they've got the get out of jail free card whenever it's not valid when they get to heaven. Because God knows. This morning, I've been scattered today. I pray that you would, whatever the Lord might have spoken to you, I pray that you would use that and. It would be of some benefit to you.